I came across. We're going to have a little interactive uh, part of the sermon right out of the gate. You guys ready for an interactive piece? Oh, see, you're so much better than the first service. Like, first service was like three people. It was a private conversation almost. This week in my sermon prep, uh, I came across some research where um, some, uh, some researchers had gone and they had uh, gone to kids. I'm not sure their ages, but younger kids. And they said to them, tell us what you want to be when you grow up. Now, Maggie's going to hold the graphic and not put it up because I'm going to show you the answers. But as part of the interactive um, uh, talk or an interactive portion, I'm going to ask you to guess. So we're going to start with boys. What do you guys think, or ladies and gentlemen, what do you think would be the top five things that little boys want to be when they grow up? Shout out a couple of them. You, man, I'm going to record this for first service. Now, I heard football player, fireman, astronaut, policeman, and president. I like that. Yeah, I'm not sure that might be true anymore, but back in the day, it might have been true. Okay, so um, that's what little boys wanted to be when they grew up. So what do you guys think that little girls want to be when they grow up? Shout out what little girl. All right, easy now, easy. Married, okay, that's interesting. A ballerina. A what? Teacher. A nurse. And queen. I like queen. We love, the, we love the princess theme, so we'll go with queen. Okay, that's kind of what I would have thought, okay? So check this out. Now, here's what came back. We'll go with the boys first. At pro athlete, right? And what I love about number two is that's still true for most of us, right? I don't know. And firefighter, engineer, and astronaut, you guys got just about all of them. How about number one for girls? Can I get an amen for that? How cool is that? I mean, to me, that was like, man, I, the culture is changing around us where little girls are dreaming of growing up to be doctors. I, I love that. And we have teacher, and, and the girls aren't so sure either, um, and scientist. Um, I mean, just kind of like glass, you know, with a glass ceiling shattering careers. I'm a father of two girls, and I read that study, and I'm like... That's awesome, man. I love that, that, that girls are beginning to think outside of the box and maybe think outside of cultural norms. Now, if you're like me, you've raised some kids, uh, maybe you spent a lot of time when you, you know, we start, I don't know, when they're four or five, we start asking them, what do you want to be when you grow up? And, and they usually come up with an answer, right? And, and something happens in that conversation. And, and we got something. We got a truth when we were growing up from our mom and dad. And, and so we hand it down to our kids. I've handed it down to all four of my kids. And you know what it is. I don't want to show you you know what it is. Um, we'll have a conversation and we'll say, we'll say, kids, I want you to know, when you grow up, you can be anything you want, Right? We've all said it. We've all been told it. It's a great saying. It's a well-meaning teaching. Here's this morning's question. What if it's just plain not true? Not only that, what if, as we keep perpetuating that, at least without bringing some balance to it maybe, what if it's actually doing more harm to our children? What if it's actually done more harm to our souls, ourselves, um, than it has good? Welcome to week three of this series. We're calling Wonder Life. In this series, and, and, and hopefully a lot of you are in small groups and you're going through the, the books, we're trying to just answer two questions, um, profound questions, life questions, 
two essential questions. It's the one everybody, it's the question everybody's been asking, the two everybody's asking since the beginning of creation. It's this, who am I and what am I doing here? Do I have a purpose? What's my identity? What's the whole point? Now, the goal of this series, as you spend time talking about this in your small groups, is not that you would come to some cookie-cutter, one-size-fits-all theological answer. I can give you a theological answer. Okay, there's, there's many theological points to, you know, to, to uh, enjoy God and glorify Him forever. And I know the theology behind why you're here. But I, what we're trying to do is look at kind of the personal answer. I'm not looking to give you a cookie-cutter answer. I'm hoping you can find your own and so what we're trying to do is give tools and resources and a framework so you can draw a conclusion personally about what you specifically, who you are, and what you're supposed to do. And now we've dedicated four weeks to this. Believe it or not, next week's going to be the last week uh, in, this, in this talk. Your small groups will spend a little more time on it. But I hope you're taking some notes, and I hope you're dealing with some of these things, these trail markers we've looked at along the way in your small group. All the messages, by the way, are online, they're on our Facebook page, they're on our webpage. If you missed one of them, you can go back and check it out. I'm just going to remind you of the first two trail markers we've kind of hit here on this journey to identifying who I am and, and what am I supposed to be doing with my life. Trail marker number one was this. You have to believe, you have to begin to believe that your story matters. You have to believe my story matters. Where I've been, what I've done, what I've accomplished, what I've accomplished, where I've failed, what has happened to me, it matters. All of this material we're trying to call out of Psalm 139 from King David, the greatest king in the history of Israel. Many of you know he wrote almost most of the book of Psalms. It's almost like a personal journal. And King David was quite a guy. I mean, King David was a brilliant leader, right? As a little boy, he slays Goliath, and we all know that story. And he's a man, the Bible says he's a man off God's own heart. But he's a complex man. He's just like you and I. He, he, he loves God and he's a brilliant leader, but he also loves other men's wives and he kills them. And so David is wrestling with his story. And what, what conclusion he starts to draw is that both pieces of those story matter. If, you're, if King David was like you and me, I would leave behind a book that only had the brilliant leadership and the Goliath slaying behind. I would rip out any of the shameful parts or the embarrassing parts because I wouldn't anybody want anybody to know them. But here's the deal. Your story, just like his story, the reason we're still talking about his story is he shared it. Your story, where you've been, what you've done, your wins, losses, successes, and failures, your joys, your sorrows, they all matter. They really do. You are not a bit player in a middle school, high school play, or a middle school drama. You are a vital character in an epic life and death drama that is being played out where at stake are the risks, the risk of eternity for men and women. God created you with a purpose. He created you with meaning and honor. He created you with intent. And you were supposed to be playing a role in a grand redemptive story. A massive story. It is a story, church. I have to make sure you understand this. It is a story that is grand, but it is a story that is not about you. You are not the central character in the story. A lot of you know the, the most um, widely sold book in the history of the world, other than the Bible, I think it was Rick Warren's Purpose Driven Life. And it starts with a simple sentence. It's not about you. It's not about you. Your story matters. 
but it's part of a bigger story about what God is up to. It's a story not about you. You're not the central character. Jesus Christ is, but you have an important role. Your story matters. The good chapters, the ones you want to hide, the embarrassing ones, the painful ones. Listen to me, guys, and it's, it's those places. It's the painful ones. It's the shameful ones. It's the ones that you wish you could kind of rip out and hide. Those are usually the ones that God is going to, to use you, uh, is going to use in your life to both form you and to give you cause and purpose. Don't be quick to run, want to run away from them. Your story matters. You've got to believe your story matters. Now, week two, we looked at the second truth here. I'm unashamed about what it is that I love and care about. So many of us growing up, we were aware of things we wanted to do. We were passionate about things. We had gifts. David, in his God-inspired writings, figured this out. But he understood that he had been given gifts and talents. He, talents he had an identity and a purpose. This is key to understanding this material. You've got to begin to believe at deep places in your soul. You are a one-of-a-kind original. There's nobody else like you, and it's not because you're a screw-up. There's nobody else like you because God fashioned you to be just the way you are. You are not a production line commodity. You were a thought of God long before you took your first breath. He prepared to bring you into this world at just the right time. You were born, this scripture actually says this in a couple places, at just the right time. He was preparing you for the world. He was preparing the world for you until the very day of your birth. That was the day of the grand unveiling. Whatever it is that brings you joy, makes you laugh, causes your heart to soar, or maybe slink back in fear, whatever those things are, those things are intentionally put there by God. They weren't random. And as you find them and as you embrace them and stop running away shamefully from them, you can find identity and purpose. So often God gives us talents and gifts and interests and somebody along the way comes and tells us, that's not going to be good enough to make any money with. You should move on. You're never going to draw a crowd with that gift. You should move on. But as you saw from Hannah this morning, I mean, she could have moved on. She, she's in a prison sharing the gospel through dance. I got an email this week, the same week, from somebody else in the church. This is so cool. Like, when we get this, it changes our lives. We begin to understand who we are, maybe how we were created, and what we should be doing. Uh, they wrote, I've been inspired by the new sermon series. Over the years, I've had several people in the community ask me to help them run and, and train for a race because they know me through coaching their kids or, or they just know I love to run. Well, yesterday, another mom, came, another mom came and asked me to help her. And so when I went home, thinking about what we had talked about in church, I Googled running and God. And I found a really cool running program Bible study. It's called Run for God. It's actually amazing. You should check it out. She goes on, I'm not sure what I'm going to do with this yet, but it really got me excited. I even ordered the book. I'll send you the video I found, too. I just wanted to thank you for the inspiration and helping me understand it's about God's purpose for my life. God has a purpose for your life. That gets blown all the time. His purpose is not to make you rich. His purpose is not to make you famous. His purpose is to use you to build his kingdom, which is the only thing that can help any of us. So week two, try, stop trying to be like everybody else, to look like everybody else. Allow your dreams and passions and interests to come back to life. So now we're at trail marker three. Three or four, we're almost done. And in honor of trail marker two, I want to put out there what I am now unashamed of. Although perhaps I should be. 
When I was a little boy, and it probably won't come, if I was given my list of things I wanted to be, it won't come as a surprise to many of you, pastor would not have made my top five. I had some grand plans. I've shared with uh, some of you up here over the years what those things were. As best I can remember, there was two things I wanted to achieve. I wasn't a big thinker in terms of like space or astronaut or cowboy. The first thing I wanted to be was a gas station man. <laughs> I loved gas station men. You pull up, like they're in charge, you have big wads of cash, right? <laughs> Love the smell of gas. And so like, I'm going, this is the dream job. And it just so happened that my neighbor owned um, Panther Valley Shell. I don't know if you know where Panther Valley is, up on, on 517, and it's kind of a wealthy little gated community, and he owned this Shell station that was there. So I achieved my lifelong dream at the age of 14. It's been downhill ever since. <laughs> and so I'm, I get my job at Panther Valley Shell. I, you know, I'm 14, 15 years old. I weigh about 110 pounds. Head's still the same size it is now. And, and I'm pumping gas. And Joan and I, we were, we were out yesterday, and we stopped at a gas station. I looked at Joan, and I said, these clowns have it so easy today, Joan. Back in the day when I worked, this was a much harder job. I mean, think about it, right? They just set the button. They put it in. It stops. Like, when I pumped gas, like, you were running from car to car, hoping you didn't overrun. Every once in a while, you'd forget about one. Gas would start flying all over the place. People would be yelling, I only wanted five bucks. And then, you know, you create your credit card, you just slide it in the machine, the machine takes it. We used to have to go back inside and run the credit card, and people would be honking, yelling at you. I, and then, you know, today, they don't, there's no service. Back then, it was like, you got to do the windows, and then they would tell you, you know, you got to ask people if you would like them. This was really funny. They, they told me in my training, which was essentially, my training was all of, you should ask people if they want their oil checked, because we need to sell oil. And if they want their oil checked, you should check their oil and sell them oil. Okay, well, I didn't know how to check oil, um, and I didn't get trained, but uh, so I'm working at Panther Valley Shell, and all the wealthy people are kind of pulling in. I remember this guy came in, he had a giant gold Cadillac, and it was big and shiny, and uh, I would always go up to the, to the window and say, would you like me to check your oil? And I, I'd always be going, please, God, no. And uh, the guy goes, yeah, that would be great, and I'm going, oh, mama. So, uh, you know, I fumbled around, opened his giant hood, I looked in there, and I'm going, yeah, nothing here looks familiar, um, but I know I'm supposed to sell him oil. So I said, yeah, I think you need some oil. And he, go, he goes, okay, why don't you put a quart in? I'm going, okay. So I had no idea how to put oil in a car. No idea. So I fumble with the oil can. I put the spout back in when you had to put the spout in the oil can, you know, and I put the spout in, and I go into the engine. I'm looking around, and I, I just find the first thing I can twist to open, and I start pouring, pouring the oil in. And after like three seconds, the oil just starts pouring all over the engine, and smoke's coming up, and I quickly take it out and close it up, close the hood, you're good, and uh, sent him off on his way. And uh, I found out later that that was the power steering fluid that I had been pour, pumping the oil into. So if you have any friends or family members that drove a, a gold Cadillac in the late 80s or lived in Panther Valley, don't, don't let my story out. So that was the first thing I wanted to be. The aspirations weren't high. The second thing I wanted to be, I actually had much higher aspirations. Um, I, I wanted to be a singer. <laughs> I, I didn't want to be just any singer. I had a hero. Uh, and I wanted to be just like him. Maggie?
I loved them. I wanted to be the man that made the whole world sink. I wanted to teach them about love and special things. We had like a record player down there on the lower level and I'd put it on and I would just be belting out, oh Mandy. <laughs> I was letting it rip and a couple things happened that taught, told me that this might not work out for me. One, my mom came down and she kind of gave me a look of, you're not a very good singer. And my father came down and he'd give me a look that seemed to echo other concerns um, that might have been greater in his mind at the moment. And so I moved on. Wasn't going to be Barry. But I like sports, so I said, you know what? I like the Mets. Maybe I could be like a center fielder for the New York Mets. So I went out for Little League. I learned very quickly I was not going to be the center fielder for Mount Olive High School, let alone for the New York Mets. And so I learned a profound truth. And it's a truth that might sound limiting, but once you embrace it, it can be quite freeing. Here's the truth. I got lied to, and you got lied to. You can't be anything you want to be. I know your mama never told you, but let me be the first to explain. I'm never going to be Mookie Wilson or Barry Manilow. I wasn't given their talents or gifts or nose. Um, it's the truth, right? And so here's the realization. If you, want, if you want to understand biblically who you are and what you were created to be, here's the trail marker number three. You have to become honest about your obstacles and your opportunities. Now, I know some of you don't want to hear this truth because this rocks our world, especially in America, right? What do you mean? It's the land of the free, home of the brave. You can be anything you want. Okay, understand me now. I'm not talking about giving up on your dreams. I'm not telling you you shouldn't work hard towards accomplishments. If you've ever heard me speak over the last 10 years, you know that I don't believe in that. And I'm not saying that your dreams don't matter. Listen to me. I'm not saying that your dreams don't matter. What I'm saying is that God's dreams for you, the God that created you and fashioned you with a certain, uh, in a certain way, with a certain purpose, I'm not saying your dreams don't matter. I'm saying that God's dreams for you matter more than your dreams for yourself. God's dreams for you are better than your own dreams for yourself. When you move from a humanistic mindset of it's all about my story and my dreams, and you start to go, what if it was about discovering my story within his dreams and his dreams for me? It begins to give you purpose and identity. His dreams, when you embrace God's dreams for you, it frees you up to be who you really are rather than other, what you think you need to be. Now, this can sound limiting. I get that. But heard correctly, maybe for the first time, some of you can just go, whew. My son is uh, Caleb. M many of you know him. He's 18 years old. He's a freshman at Virginia Tech. And uh, Caleb was a very good wrestler in high school, and he's trying to wrestle at Virginia Tech. And uh, Virginia Tech is the number two team in the country. Um, for all intent and purpose, they might as well be the number two team in the world. Um, and so Caleb's trying to, to work his way onto that team, and it's an uphill battle, and we'll see where it goes. But he was wrestling a, uh, a kid the other day. It was a 21-year-old kid, transferring from Oklahoma State, had already won uh, over 20 Division I um, wrestling matches, and they called Caleb over to wrestle this kid. And... Uh, so it was all about the other kid. The, the coaches kept screaming at the other kid, put Eisman on his back, put Eisman on his back, put Eisman on his back. And uh, they didn't really care about Caleb. He's a walk-on. So uh, they're yelling at the kid, put Eisman on his back, put Eisman on his back. Caleb hits the kid with a five-point move and puts him on his back. Yeah, 
that sounds like a good story, but it didn't end well for Caleb. Um, because then they got up. And uh, it proceeded to go really bad in the other direction after that moment. And so I was sharing this story with my dad. I love my dad. My dad was a wonderful father. My dad instilled so much confidence in me. Sometimes it, would, it makes my family sick, okay? And so I went over to my dad's house last weekend. I was sharing this story about how it went with Caleb. And uh, he's like, well, he just needs to be more confident. And I said, well, dad, I mean, I said, this kid is one of the best wrestlers in the world. You think that he just needs to be more confident and then he would, he would win? Yeah, that's right. You need to tell him to be more confident. Tell him I said he's got to be more confident. <laughs> I said, Dad, what if the kid's just, I mean, is it possible that the kid is better than he is? And he goes, no. <laughs> he said, he just needs to be more confident. And I looked at Courtney and I said, do you see this is what I grew up under over here? This is why I am the way I am. And so I said, Dad, this is a truthful conversation. Courtney will back me up on this. I said, Dad, are you saying it's just about confidence? So if that's true, I could call this kid up right now and bring him over here and you would beat him. And my 72-year-old father looked at me and said, that's right. <laughs> Completely serious. Because my father never, never embraced this truth. You have to be honest about your obstacles and your opportunities. It can sound limiting, but it's not. It can be relieving. You don't have to be the next Steve Jobs or Michael Jordan or Beyonce. I know for, for me at some level, right? Like, I don't need, if I could just, if, if, if I could feel the freedom to not have to be the next Andy Stanley, or, or, or Joel Osteen, right? Like, if I just freed up not to feel like I, I, need to, I need to preach like that or look like that, if I could be freed up to just be, like, mildly athletic, singing-challenged John, like, that would be so wonderful. Because I might find the purpose God had for me rather than trying to, to be something I wasn't created to be. Now, freeing. Freeing, but I have, to give you, I have to give you a very important caveat before you take too deep a breath. Because if everything that David teaches in Psalm 139 is true, and as a church we would confess it is, then it also carries with it one profound responsibility. One profound responsibility, and it's this. You, not your wife, not your husband, not your kids, not your boss, you are responsible, solely responsible for becoming the person you were meant to be. Nobody else can do that. Here's how David put it in Psalm 139 when he was trying to, to wrestle with who he was and what he was to do. He said, he said, you have searched me, Lord, and you know me. You know when I sit, you know when I rise. You perceive my thoughts from afar. You discern my going out. You discern my lying down. You're familiar with all of my ways. Before a word's on my tongue, you, Lord, know it completely. And now look at the, look at the point of your creation. He says... Lord, you created my inmost being. You knit me together in my mother's womb. I praise you because I'm fearfully and wonderfully made. Your works are wonderful. I know that full well. David understands. He goes, my frame wasn't hidden from you when I was made in the secret place, when I was woven together in the depths of the earth. You saw my unformed body. And all of the days ordained for me were written in your book before each one of them came to be. 
See, David got that you and I were made and fashioned in a certain way with talents and passions and gifts. But here's what he also had to have understood, and you and I have to understand too. If he was fashioned that way, that means that God also fashioned you and I with limits in different areas. Both inside and outside, from frame to innermost being, knit together by God with purpose and honor and intent, and designed for meaning and purpose, but it doesn't mean you can do anything you, you want to do. And part of, embracing of, part of embracing who God meant you to be is accepting what he did not make you to be. As parents, certainly I'm not advocating we tell our kids, John, let me be honest with you, you're a cruddy gas station man, you stink at singing, you're an athletic buffoon, so you might as well just, I don't know, start sweeping. I'm not saying we do that to our kids, but how about this? Could we reframe it as parents where we'd start to say to our kids, instead of saying they could be anything they want to be, which so often puts so much pressure on the child to be everything that, that somebody else says they should be, what if instead we came alongside them and we said, why don't you and I figure out together, let me help you and see if we can figure out together who God created you to be. That's the great pursuit of life. That's where your purpose is and your identity. We can help our kids in that. And God wants to help us in that. In this workbook, there's this great quote in the Wonder Life workbook by Hugh McKay about the pursuit of happiness. I just want to be happy. I just want my kids to be happy. It's the pursuit we're all on because we're not trying to find our identity and purpose. Oftentimes, we just want to be happy. We just want our kids to be happy. Here's what he said about happiness. I think it's so good. He said, the idea that everything we do is part of the pursuit of happiness seems to me a really dangerous idea. And it's led to a, contempor a, a contemporary disease in Western society, which is called fear of sadness. We're kind of teaching our kids that happiness is the default position. It's rubbish. I wish every teenage kid could hear this. It's rubbish. Wholeness is what we ought to be striving for. And part of that is sadness and disappointment, frustration and failure. All of those things which make us who we are. Happiness and victory and fulfillment, they're nice little things that happen to us, but they don't teach us that much. I'd like for a year to have a moratorium on the word happiness and replace it with the word wholeness so that you could ask yourself, is this contributing to my wholeness? And if you're having a bad day, it is. And so with our time left this morning, as we start to look at trail marker number three, like I have to be honest about what I'm good at and what I'm not. I have to embrace the th the, my, my obstacles. Here's three things I'm going to ask you to focus on if you want to figure out who you really are, who God created you to be, and what he wants you to do with your life. The first one is this, honesty. Have you ever noticed, generally speaking, as human beings, we are very good about being honest about other people's opportunities and obstacles? I can tell you, all of, all of you, what's wrong with each and every one of you. I stink at figuring out what my problem is. We're really good about being honest about other people. We're really bad about being honest with ourselves. Research shows, for example, that we're really good at judging danger out in the world or, or assessing things in other people's lives. But when it comes to looking at the inside of our own hearts and looking at the obstacles and opportunities that God has created us to live with, being honest with ourselves, taking an honest inventory, we're not that great. Mike Foster, the author of the book, he came across some research about men and women in this regard. 
It was a study where they asked men and women to rate their personal attractiveness. This is so good. Like on a scale of 1 to 10, right? It was like hot or not, right? And so they would ask women and men, uh, 10 being hot, 1 being not, rate yourself. And so when they did the research, what they found was, and this is not surprising, women tend to rate themselves lower on the personal attractiveness scale. So let's say that, you know, in, in realistic terms, you, you, you're like an 8. You would tell the researchers, you know, I'm more of a 4 or a 5. Just as interesting, though, <laughs> just as interesting is how men rated themselves. So men would rate themselves at the top end of the spectrum. They tend to call themselves nines and tens. There was an attitude that kind of ran uh, wild within that group of men where they were essentially saying, my wife is lucky to have this. <laughs> but in truth, like the guys were fours or fives. Now, they've done the work on this, and here's why that happens. Um, it turns out that in the morning when we wake up, we all look in the mirror and for ladies, you have lots of options. You know, hair and, and makeup and, and, and clothes and shoes, all kinds of different things. When guys, when we look in the mirror in the morning, we're like, this is as good as this is going to get. <laughs> and so you just kind of default to, ah, it's got to be an eight, right? It, it doesn't matter what the self-assessment is. We're not good at it. But if we, want to, if we want to get to a place where we start to embrace it, who we were, figure out who we are, we need to be honest with ourselves about who we are. This kind of honesty, it's not just limited to your talents, your opportunities. Paul, the Bible, Apostle Paul talks about it in regards to our heart. He, he says that you should even be honest about where you are in your faith. I, I, we had our first starting point group at my house this week, and I said to everybody in the room, I said, listen, I don't care if you're an atheist or you're the most spiritual person in the room. I'm glad you're here, but just tell me where you are with God. And this is what we're supposed to be doing. We're supposed to be examining ourselves. For, for centuries, the Christian church has said, just memorize the Bible. I'm telling you, you should memorize the Bible, but the Bible that you're memorizing says that you should be looking at your heart a lot. Here's what Paul said to the church. He wrote a letter to a Corinth, the first letter he wrote them called 1 Corinthians. He says, everybody, who do you think everybody would be? That would be you and me. Everyone ought to examine themselves before they eat of the bread and drink from the cup. Just what we did this morning. Lord, as, I, as I'm entering into this moment with you, as I'm about to, to enter a holy moment where I'm remembering who you are and what you did, I need to look at where I am, what I'm doing, and why, why I'm doing it. So I'm going to ask you a question, speaking of being honest. Have you ever, ever prayed a prayer where you've said to God in a very serious fashion, in a very serious fashion, God, would you really examine me and show me who I am? Like, God, would you, I need to know who I am. Would you show me? Now, I've done this, and this is a prayer God answers. And a lot of times when you see it, you go, oof, I need to fix that. But this is where becoming who you were meant to be starts. I mean, have you ever asked God to show you your hidden motives, to reveal why you do the things you do, why you react the way you react, why it is that you have a hard time making friends or keeping relationships? Have you ever asked him to show you the role you've played in your tough marriage or, or with your dysfunctional kids or, or with your lack of success on, on the job? Have you ever said, Lord, what is it in me? Because this is what David did. David 
King David, successful David, murderer and adulterer of David, he's wrestling with God and he says, Lord, I need you to examine me. I showed you that earlier, right? I showed you that in the beginning of that psalm. He says, Lord, you have searched me. You know me. You know when I sit and when I rise. But then he closes the psalm with this. Check this out. He says, Lord, God's already done this. He already said in the first two verses that God's already done. He says, God, again, investigate my life. Find out everything about me. Cross-examine me, test me, get a clear picture of what I'm about. See for yourself whether I've done anything wrong. Church, listen. And then, in a sense, show it to me. Guide me on the road to eternal life. Show me, show me the deal with myself, God. I don't want to be the same old person. I don't want to be caught up in the same old habits and ruts and ways. Show me who I am. Show me why I do what I do. God, would you be honest with me so I could be honest with myself? You want a take home for, for this week? Here's your take home. Just take 10 minutes in the morning and at night. Take Psalm 139 out. Read it and pray that prayer before you go to bed and before you head out into the day. God, I'm going to read Psalm 139 and I'm going to ask you, Lord, would you show me who I am? Would you be very honest with me? I can take it. Would you be very honest with me about who I am? What is it I'm chasing? What dreams maybe I need to let go because they were really about just getting the love I desired? What's at the root and the core of me, God? So number one, if you, if you want to find yourself, you need to be honest. Number two, you need to embrace humility like crazy. Pride is at the center of our sin problem. Pride is at the center of humanity's sin problem. Pride is at the root of almost all evil, and it will unchecked. Your pride unchecked will ever keep you from figuring out who you were meant to be. Because you're always trying to be something else. You're always trying to be something more, something more grandiose. Again, Paul to the church in Rome. He says, for the grace given to me, I say to every one of you, don't think of yourself. See, our default mechanism is pride. Don't think of yourself more highly than you ought, but think of yourself with sober judgment. In accordance with the faith God has distributed to you. Now, this is a struggle for me. My default mechanism is pride. Uh, there was an old book on marriage called um, Love Languages. You remember that? Um, my love language is not in the book, but my love language is respect. Like, if you buy me a gift card, I really appreciate that. That's wonderful. But I really, for some reason, I have this, this, this is my brokenness. I want to be respected. Um, my kids will tell you, right? Like, when it's like a thing at daddy, don't, oh. <laughs> like, if somebody disrespects dad, you can hear the other three go, oh, boy. Um, and then when they realize what they've done, they'll usually start by going, well, I wasn't disrespecting you. Um, unfortunately, my staff has felt that from me. Don't, don't, don't let them think you're disrespecting them. It's an issue. And it, if pride is at the center of our sin problem, lack of humility, then what do you think is at the center of Jesus Christ? Because God says his ways aren't our ways. Our default place is pride. Here's, here's what Paul said to a letter uh, the church at Philippi. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, but in humility value others above yourselves. Don't look to your own interests, but to the interests of others. And in your relationships with one another, husbands, wives, fathers, mothers, kids to parents, have the same mindset as Jesus, who, being in very nature God, didn't consider equality God with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing. And he took on the nature of a servant. And he was, he, he, he was made in human likeness. And he was found in an appearance as a man, an unattractive man, according to the scriptures. He didn't even make himself good looking. Could you imagine? And he humbled himself. And he became obedient to death, even to death on a cross. 
In order to find ourselves and our purposes, we need to become a little bit more like Jesus, and we need to humble ourselves. That means we need to blow up maybe some of our current definitions of what success is, if it's size or, or scale or, or, or what pop culture importance might be. Jesus' Jesus's ministry by earthly standards was quite unimpressive. There's a couple stragglers left at the end, and he changed the world. And in trying to find our identity and our purpose, if we would just care about those things, if we would give up on being rich or famous and just pursue being faithful, you might find the life you were created to live. Lastly, there's this. It's a serious step. If you, now, this is for those of you that are serious about this, okay? Because there's danger here. But if you really want to get a, uh, an answer to these profound questions about who you are and, and what your purpose is, Here's the one thing I see that is a common flaw in all of us, more than any other thing uh, in ministry. And this, by the way, includes me. Uh, I've become aware of this in my own life. As a people, when it comes to ourselves, we can be so unself-aware. We have no idea, we have very little ability to see or understand how we come across to others. Do you know somebody like that? They walk in the room and everybody in the room goes, oh. <laughs> you know, like... You know, I don't want to be with her or him because she's going to say something. And, you know, it's okay. and here's the problem. Nobody's loved them enough or cared about them enough to say anything. And they haven't come to a place where they're comfortable enough to go to someone and say, could you help me with my blind spots? Because I think I might be missing something about myself. Band, if you guys would come up. If you're up for the challenge this week, I would ask you to examine yourself but I'd push you even more, and I'd say, would you get with somebody? The book does a great job with this. The, the workbook's actually very cool. It says, come up with a board of directors in your life. And it says, start to name people that you could uh, assign tasks to. One would be a, a coach. One would be a cheerleader. But one would be a challenger. Scriptures are replete with it, folks. Proverbs, the book of wisdom. The way of a fool is right in his own eyes. But a wise man listens to advice. And in order to listen to advice, you've got to go seek it. Proverbs, where there's no guidance, a people fails, but in an abundance of counselor, there is safety. Trail marker number three. I can be honest about my opportunities and my obstacles. It sounds limiting, but it is so freeing as you stop trying to be who you want to be and you start becoming who you are meant to be. Can I just close with a great quote? It's from Cheryl Strait. It's, it's in your workbook. This is so good. You don't have a right to the cards you believe you should have been dealt, but you have an obligation to play the heck out of the ones you're holding. Let's close in song together.